0: Mason Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeyville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 148, covering the week of November 26th through November 30th, 2018. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. Like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute And, of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. All those buttons are available on our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll find them. You can also give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook, and you'll get on our email list where you'll get our daily dose of Dixie, Monday through Friday, and a weekly email that includes a link to this podcast on Saturday or Sunday. Also, don't forget to download our free web application, or I should say mobile application. You can go to your favorite mobile app store, Google Play, iTunes, wherever you get your mobile apps, and you can get the Abbeville Institute on the go. It is free of charge, so you want to get that. Don't forget that you can also support the Abbeville Institute by going to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll see a button that says uh, Support. Under that, you'll have Donations for Individuals. Uh, you click on that or donor levels I think it says click on that and then it'll give you all the options to donate it is coming up at the end of the year so all of your uh, donations are tax-deductible to the full extent of the law so go out there and you can donate monthly or annually if you're making your tax preparations for 2018 you can include the Abbeville Institute in those preparations you can also support the Institute by clicking on that uh, button for support and clicking shop and you can get your Abbeville Institute gear Your shirts, your hats, your fleece makes a great gift for Christmas. So if you're thinking about that Christmas gift for that Southern friend in your life, get them an Abbeville Institute shirt or a hat or a fleece jacket. Uh, It is a little cool sometimes in the South, so you got those fleece jackets for the wintertime. If you like to play golf, we have golf towels. Those are all embroidered, so it's not just a screen print. These are embroidered shirts, hats, fleece, golf towels. These things are wonderful. They're high quality. Uh, the embroidering is excellent, top-notch, and it does not wear out over time in your washing machine or your dryer. So uh, you've got a shirt that will last or a fleece jacket that's going to last rather than something that will just uh, you know, fall apart in the washing machine over time. So get your Abbeville Institute apparel. Uh, it is... Uh, Right there on the webpage, again, under uh, under support, under the shop button. So you want to get those for Christmas. Get them, order in the time, because it does take a week or so to get them, a little over a week, so you want to get them now. Make sure that that friend of yours gets that, or that relative gets that Abbeville Institute apparel in time for Christmas. All right, well, uh, the, the uh, pieces for the week actually fit very nicely together. We had uh, three that go very nicely together, then two that went very nicely together. And they're all under this idea of, you know, as we always do, of the importance of Southern culture in modern society. Um, and I think that's something that people that don't understand this, they don't really understand how the South fits into a modern American narrative, because uh, the South, of course, is typically demonized. It's it's uh, the the insignificant other, it's the evil other. In American society, you have to have Southern Studies programs in every major university and college across the country. And because of that, the South is the specimen that's going to be dissected and analyzed by uh, uh, carpetbaggers and others who come into the South. Well, I'm going to study the South because it's the odd, supposedly. It's not the North that's the odd. It's the South that's the odd. And so because the South is the odd, then we have to have these Southern Studies programs. And the South is... The whipping boy for everything that's wrong with America, whether it's race, whether it's gender, whether it's class, whatever, whatever uh, you know, a conflict, Marxist conflict that we need to have in society. The South is always the reason why all these things exist. Uh, The North is never guilty of any of these things, uh, but the South always is. Now, uh, I know that there are Northerners out there today because I've had people who uh, we've seen people on our social media accounts who who take offense at the fact that the South is still promoting Confederate symbols and statues and monuments and other things. And then if you bring up the fact, well, I mean, the North is part of it. Yes, we know we're going out and we're, we're actively, uh, you know, bowing our head and saying that we were wrong in all these things. And the South should do that, too. There was actually a Northern who commented quite extensively on our social media page trying to tell us that if we really want to know how to, how to remember monuments. Just come on up to Massachusetts. We'll show you. I mean, this is hilarious. This is what these people, people think. It is that Yankee mentality of we do everything right, you do everything wrong. Uh, so we'll tell you how to remember your monuments. Uh, don't you worry. We'll, we'll, we'll make sure that that's taken care of. Uh, so that, that's, that's where we are in 2018. And part of that, of course, is the idea that we need to tear down Robert E. Lee. And when I say tear down Robert E. Lee, I'm not just talking about taking down statues. I'm not just talking about uh, you know the the Confederate battle flag or anything having to do with the Confederacy. It's Lee, the man, that must be destroyed, because it's this what's often called the Marble Man myth that's, that that uh, people want to take apart that Lee was somehow not very uh, not uh, not very good person. Uh, he's not someone who should be admired, certainly not someone who should be emulated, that Lee was a traitor. Lee was one of the worst examples in American society. And a lot of this started with uh, Pryor's book, Reading the Man, uh, which I've talked about on this uh, particular podcast before. Uh, we've we've uh, published articles and other things dealing with that particular book. But um, it's It's this book that really set the stage for this idea that Lee was somehow this awful person that uh, needs to be torn down, that we shouldn't admire Robert E. Lee at all. That, uh, In contrast to other great Americans, Lee was not a great American. Now, I've written in my Politically Incorrect Guide to Real American Heroes that Robert E. Lee is a great American hero. So I take the position that Lee was a great American and an American hero, and I've taken apart that, that Pryor book quite extensively and in detail. But the attacks continue, and every now and then you'll see a piece that comes out from somewhere like the Atlantic or one of these leftist organizations, leftist news outlets, that they're bashing Robert E. Lee. And they take Pryor's book, or you get the Twitter historian brigade that goes out and takes down Lee. And now you have Stanley McChrystal, and we talked about this a couple of weeks back, saying that he threw away his picture of Robert E. Lee and uh, he needs to repent for his uh, Lee worship at one point in his life. And this, of course, came from his time in the United States military, where Lee was admired for generations by American soldiers, not just in the South, but in the North. I mean, Lee was studied. Uh, This was the quintessential uh, officer, general officer, but more importantly, just officer in the United States military. People forget that Lee was in the United States military for decades before he served the Confederacy. And he was regarded by Winfield Scott, who was the most decorated general officer in American history, besides George Washington, at the time, as the greatest soldier he ever knew. So this is the reputation Lee had. And of course, as you move forward past the war, it wasn't just Americans who believed this. And Americans did, North and South, recognize Lee's greatness as a general officer and Lee's greatness as a man. But it was Europeans who said this as well. In fact, it was Europeans almost at the beginning uh, of the period, right after the war in the post-bellum period, who recognized Lee as one of the greatest Americans that ever lived, who recognized his talents as a military officer, as a first rate. The French did, the Germans did, the British did, everyone did. So uh, this was not just something confined to the South, where you had uh, this lost cause, quote-unquote, mentality, the Marble Man myth, where it's supposedly only Southerners who ever believed these things. Nobody else ever thought that Lee was a great general or a great American or a great man. No one thought that outside of the South. It was simply just fabricated by the South to show that uh, they were actually good people. And, of course, when you read Pryor, one of the things she does, first of all, her sources are just pathetic. Uh, Pathetic. If you go through the book... And you and you cross-reference her sources. She'll use one source, one source to quote unquote prove that Lee did these things. One source, uh, particularly when you get to the postbellum period, and there are some issues with Lee as as uh, president of Washington and Lee, Washington College, and then later Washington and Lee University, uh, where he is uh, uh, condoning racial violence. One source. And that source doesn't even verify anything, and not just that, uh, the evidence points in a different direction. If you read all the other sources, so this is this is the problem with um, with the modern historical profession. They just read the oh yeah, there you go. This is it. And I've seen the Twitter Historian Brigade do this quite uh, quite often. Uh, they'll they'll take one source and say, well, there it is. There is the definitive evidence that Lee was this way, even though that source can be easily disputed and discarded. Um, so. Lee the man is an important part of America because Lee the man, in terms of his character, was an important part of America, still is an important part of America. In fact, Booker T. Washington wrote in a private letter that he hoped that the South would erect monuments to the best men in Southern society because those were examples, and Lee was one of those examples. These were examples of people that should be admired across the South, and not just across the South, across the United States. So whether Washington was in favor of uh, Confederate monuments and memorials uh, outside of that, we we don't know, but he certainly wasn't opposed to putting up monuments, and he was supportive of a monument right in his backyard. I mean, there there is a Confederate monument in Tuskegee, there is a, there was a Confederate monument in Opelika, Alabama, right in his backyard, and he was in favor of these things. So he could have said, "I don't I don't want these things. I don't think these things are good." And he could have easily, I mean, Booker T. Washington was the most respected African-American in the United States in the late 19th century. He could have been saying anything he wanted, but he didn't. And he said that these monuments should exist for the the best of Southern society. So uh, this this attack on Lee is really an attack on America. It's an attack on American character. It's an attack on what it means to be an American. It's an attack on uh, the best of American society. And, of course, if you attack Lee, you have to attack Washington and Jefferson and the like, because Lee was simply emulating what he thought in his mind was the best of American character coming from that founding generation, from his father, who was Washington's right-hand man, essentially, at one point. I mean, Light Horse Harry Lee was the quintessential Virginian, just as George Washington was the quintessential Virginian. Now, Lee... uh, Lee's father, Light Horse Harry Lee, had his own problems, and of course he died. He was in uh, terrible debt, but he also wrote a lot about uh, what it, how to be a good man, and he sent these things to Lee, and Lee read them, and Lee modeled his life and his character after these particular uh, wishes on what it meant to be a good man and, and how how to live a proper life, and so Lee lived by these maxims, and i, I about five years ago, almost now, It was one of the first pieces we published on the website. Uh, I wrote a little piece about what Washington thought, how Washington thought men should live, and how Light Horse Harry Lee Lee thought men should live. And so, it's important to revisit these things because Lee Robert E Lee read these letters, particularly from his father, and um, <laughs> this is how he lived his life. And so, when you read these, you get the idea. Okay, I mean, this is this is Lee. So, this is what Light Horse Harry Lee told his son in letters on how to live, because his his father was absent most of the time, and um very sad story, but this is how he told his son to live. First, I would rather see you unlettered and unnoticed, if virtuous in practice as well as theory, than see you the equal in glory to the great Washington. So, if you're virtuous in practice as well as theory, Who cares if you are unnoticed or unlettered? This is essentially a stoicism. You accept your lot. Uh, If you're going to be lettered and famous, but you don't have any virtue, then who cares? Even if you're equal in glory to Washington, you're no good if you don't have virtue. Fame in arms or art, however conspicuous, is not unless bottomed on virtue. Cleanliness of person is not only comely to all beholders, but is indispensable to sanctity of body. Trained by the best of mothers to value it, you will never lose sight of it. Be clean. Be presentable. The story of Lee going to the surrender, where he showed up well appointed, well dressed, and Grant shows up disheveled, is one of the best stories in American history. So, uh, because it showed what Lee was as a man and what Grant actually was as a man. You have this bone, you have bone kemper. Uh, running around now talking about the you know, the lost cause myth and how Lee was a terrible general and Grant was a great general. And this is now part of the cottage industry as well to tear down Lee. He wasn't a good general. Grant was a great general. Sherman was a great general. Lee, no, not a great general. But he, he was. And and his, his uh, presentation was as important as his efforts on the battlefield. Many lads, Lighthorse Harry Lee told his son, many lads fall into another habit which hurts only themselves and which certainly stupefies the senses. Immoderate sleeping. So don't sleep too much. Get up and be active. You know my abhorrence of lying, and you have been often told by me that it led to every vice and canceled every tendency to virtue. Never forget this truth and disdain this mean and infamous practice. So don't lie. Avoid debt, he told his son. Of course, Lighthorse Harry Lee was sinking in debt mired in debt. Um, So, uh, as Washington told Lee, George Washington told Light Horse Harry Lee, a man ought not only to be virtuous in reality, he must always appear so. Lee told his son, it may therefore be considered as a truth demonstrated by the history of man. That a continuous and ardent excitement of the mind, especially regarding lost or defending menaced rights, places man in that train of mind and body which brings forth the greatest display of genius. Especially after the storm has subsided, and the mind, reposing with security in the sweets of tranquility, meditates without fear. So if you defend menaced rights, or lost rights, it puts you in a train of mind and body which brings forth the greatest display of genius. And what do you think Lee was doing in 1861? What do you think uh, these people thought they were doing? And I know, well, they were defending slavery. No. Lee looked at this as a continuation of the the effort to maintain the Magna Charta, the principles of the American War for Independence. He read these things. These were maxims that Lee read over and over again. This is Lee the man. And I love this last one. Do you ride and shoot well? These are secondary, but they are agreeable, useful, and manly. Now, of course, you can't say that in 2018. You can't say someone's manly. That would be uh, just not politically correct. But this this is Lee the man. And, of course, this is the Lee that everyone tries to tear down. So in the pieces we had this week, the first is... Operation Desert Storm, Lee or Grant, and this is written by Jeffrey Atticott. who's spoken at one of our conferences. And essentially, this this piece was written way back when the when the uh, first Gulf War took place, and you had Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf out there, and he was praising William Tecumseh Sherman. And Adicott wrote this piece and said, "No, no, no, wait a second. We don't want as U.S. Army officers to praise a guy like Sherman, who was uh, a a homicidal maniac when it came down to it. This is a guy that wanted to punish the South and destroy the South. And not only destroy the soldiers in the South, but also the population of the South. This was extermination in his mind. And he said as much. So are we going to praise that? Are we going to praise this character above Lee, who led a very different kind of life in war? This is where you have the northern character. Of course, Sherman being from Ohio as opposed to the Virginian. Character matters. Character in our operations, our military operations matters. We are, in the South was, the embodiment of Western civilization. And Western civilization had rules. Western civilization had parameters when it came to warfare. Do we want to abandon those and adopt a brand of warfare that has no parameters? And these parameters were developed over time. These rules were developed over time. Do we want to be that? Or do we want to fight honorably? And of course, Robert E. Lee fought honorably, whereas William Tecumseh Sherman did not. So are we looking to fight in a dishonorable way because it's expedient, because this is what we do? Are we looking to make civilians primary targets, whereas Lee never did, but Sherman did? The Union did. Is this what we're looking to do? And so this piece is wonderful because it brings this out. As you have Stanley McChrystal saying, I'm thrown away. I'm trashing that picture because my wife said to do it. I'm trashing that picture. I can't have that up. I'm embarrassed by it. Why? You would have a picture of Sherman or Grant? You would do that. As opposed to Lee, whose character was beyond reproach. This is what people all over the world said, not just Southerners who came up with a, quote, Marble Man myth. No, these were people all over the world who said these things. So I think that's an important part to understand in this, quote, Marble Man myth, is that there's no myth here. There's no myth. This is how people regarded Lee, contemporaries regarded Lee, not just 20 or 30 or 40 years later, as people like Douglas Southall Freeman, or you know, 80 years later, as people like Douglas Southall Freeman started writing about Lee and supposedly created a myth. No, this this was reality. This is how people viewed Lee at the time and how he conducted himself at the time. So we have that. And then, of course, we had a piece by Philip Lee and uh, on this same partic- on this same issue, uh, going into the McChrystal situation, then comparing Lee to Grant, and how Grant really was not that good of a man; his character was lacking, whereas Robert E. Lee, Robert e. Lee's character was never lacking. Character. Character matters. Even if you say that. Grant was a better general or Sherman was a better general because he had more success. Grant defeated Lee, after all. What was his character? As Lee slept in a tent, Grant slept in a commandeered house. As Lee instructed his men not to punish northern civilians, Union Army soldiers ransacked the South, stole stuff, abused people, white and black. So, which one had a better character and didn't of course the union as as robert gould shaw noted in south carolina these things were done for fun burning buildings burning churches shaw was appalled the, the uh, commander of the 54th massachusetts as he was sent into uh, in charleston south carolina was appalled by some of the orders being given by union officers And, uh, this, this, this was well-documented. So, uh, it's not that, this is, this is the part of Lee that people need to understand. If we're looking for character in 2018, and a lot of people don't care about this anymore, but character matters. This is part of the Southern tradition that matters. Character. This is the continuation from the great cavaliers of the founding generation through Lee, and then through generations. This is, this is what, People strive to be, but if you tear down Lee, you take that away. And in that regard, when you have things like music, there's also an effort nowadays in pop culture to tear any of anything down that was noble from the Southern tradition in pop culture. And one of those things is music. Uh, we just had the death of Roy Clark, who was a, one of the performers on Hee Haw. And Boyd Cathy wrote a very nice little piece on how music... How, how we how how great forms of American music. We just did a whole summer school in American music, and all those lectures will be available, or they are available when you hear this podcast, They're on the website. They're going to be on the on the mobile app, so you can get those lectures. They're wonderful lectures. Uh, but how important music was in terms of culture and uh, a, a formulating a people and co- a cohesive people in the South, and these this crossed racial lines. Um, when you look at how you know white and black Southerners, you know, for example, uh, there were many uh, black Southerners uh, who wanted to do country music or uh, another type of music besides rhythm and blues, or but they were told they can't because that doesn't fit a particular narrative. They were told they can't by northern record executives. Uh, Leadbelly, for example, loved country music. He wanted to be a country musician. Many blues artists want to do country music, but they—they they were told they can't. Uh, Ray Charles did country music, uh, so you have this—you have this thing where music speaks to all people, and pe- if you like music, you're gonna like something, no matter what it is. But we've—we've uh, we've said now that bluegrass music, for example, that's just hillbilly music, and we're only gonna play it on NPR. Nobody likes bluegrass music; it's not popular. That's just. Hillbilly—that's that's racist music. Whatever it is, I mean, this is how people often define it. Classical music, same thing. And when you do that, you lose a part, a valuable part of Americana, particularly bluegrass music. Um, you lose a valuable part of Americana, and that's unfortunate. And this is what Roy—this is what Boyd says. You know, Roy Roy Clark's death symbolizes the death of a certain part of America. When these things were prominent in, in, in uh, modern pop culture, they were on television. And now you don't find them. Now pop culture is something else. You see all kinds of things in pop culture that, frankly, uh, a lot of Americans find uh, abhorrent. Uh, but yet they're in pop culture, and the idea is to desensitize people to make them think that these things are all normal, the violence, all of the, uh, all of the sex. I mean, all these things that go on, this is just normal in society, and we should just accept all of these things. And yet a wholesome show like Yeehaw wouldn't even find the light of day on television anymore. It just wouldn't happen um, as a as a variety show like that. And, of course, you do have good wholesome television shows out there. You gotta search to find them, but they're there. So this is where we are in 2018. And I think, you know, as as Boyd says, look, as as Roy Clark's Clark's death is is symbolic of the death of America in a lot of ways. A real wholesome American figure dies, and so part of America dies. And then you had Yarborough, Paul Yarborough's piece on Friday about Elvis. There was actually a critique. Donald Trump gave Elvis a uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom, I think it was, the, the, the award. Um, and there are those that said this is racist to, to give Elvis a medal, a presidential medal. It's racist because he's the king of rock and roll. And, of course, that's a slight to uh, African-Americans whose music he stole and copied. Now, Yarbrough says, no, no, by saying that, you're actually slighting African-Americans, Because they recognize that Elvis was a great musician and a great part of American culture. They themselves recognize that. So he says, what about all these other presidential medals? Are these nods to other groups? Are these nods to say, well, I'm I'm just a racist? This is how silly things have gotten in 2018. A man that was universally recognized all over the world as a symbol of America from Mississippi. Elvis. Now supporting Elvis is somehow racist. This is how silly things have gotten. Uh, and I, it's, it almost boggles the mind to think that. But this is how silly things have gotten in 2018. So you have Roy Clark on one end and Elvis on the other. And, uh, you know, Roy Clark dies and so part of America dies. Elvis is given a medal. And, of course, that's racist. So where do you go from here? How do you, how do you reconcile these things? It's nearly impossible. You can't do anything anymore without being called some name by a leftist. By a progressive, it's unfortunate. You can't say, I, you know, I like Elvis. Elvis is is racist. Um, it's just silly. And I think a lot of people recognize this stuff as nonsense. It's silly. Any any clear headed people recognize this. Oh my gosh, you're going to say that. And I and the great thing about that in some ways is I think that uh, people are starting to get enough of this. Uh, there, is a, there is a backlash to this. They're starting to get enough of this nonsense. And maybe some things will change. But this is why we exist, too, at the Abbeyville Institute, to try to offer a counterweight to these things and say, this is silly. Elvis, a man who admired the African Americans, whose music he quote-unquote stole. Of course, he didn't. But who admired these people. This is racial reconciliation at its best, not at its worst. At its best. And oftentimes, that's how rock and roll was portrayed. This is racial reconciliation. This is Dick Clark, and American bandstand. And they're bringing these African-American artists out, but also Elvis. And this type of music now is becoming popular. And it allowed for African-Americans in the South to have a voice they didn't have before because they were pigeonholed into one thing or another and they couldn't be on modern radio and all these. So this allowed that. Of course, Southerners have been around this stuff for generations. But to white to white Americans in the North, Northern Americans, well, this is the first time they're hearing this stuff. Elvis was reared on these things, uh, as as Paul says. You know, if you were if you lived in Mississippi in that time period, you didn't have black friends. You weren't alive. You weren't breathing, or you were in bed twenty four seven. I mean, this the, the the fluidity of of American life in the South was something that people recognize If you live there, there are always problems. Always. But there was also something else to that, too. And, and I think that's an interesting part of race relations in the South. So those two pieces, I think, work nicely together. And then the last piece is a book review. Um, Tom DiLorenzo wrote, wrote several years ago um, on a Charles Francis Adams book on, on how the North, uh, not just, I'm sorry, not the North, how the Europeans viewed the war. Uh, and he, this uh, Adams went back and looked at all these different European newspapers and how they viewed the war and the perspective they had on the war. It's just like Lee, their perspective on the war is important because they're not overwhelmed with this self-righteousness of the North. They're looking at it very objectively and saying, well, here's the reason why the North is going to fight the South. And a lot of that had to do with economics. Uh, they didn't really talk about the slavery issue much. Because they saw it for what it was, one side looking to coerce the other. And, of course, this is not to say that slavery wasn't an important issue. It was, but you have to ask the question, why was slavery an important issue? And and as Southerners pointed out, look, we don't think that you're going to, to destroy. There's a, there's a book on this. It's the, it's the other 13th Amendment written by Daniel Crofts, a mainstream historian. He's saying, look, Southerners said that we're not worried about you abolishing slavery in the South. It's all about the territories. It was symbolic more than anything else. Symbolic. And it was about power because they understood that if slavery was abolished from the territories, there's all going to be free states. And, of course, ultimately, that will let the North control the general government. It was symbolic. It was about power. This is Michael Holt. And I know all the James Oakes people think that Michael Holt's been discredited. He hasn't because it's, it's, his information is rock solid. It's about power. And Michael Holt is not pro-Southern. He just looks at the war and says, okay, yeah, it's about power. Everything politically is about power. Who's going to control the section? And every issue can be viewed through that lens, whether it's economics, whether it's slavery. It doesn't matter. It's all about power. It's all about Yankee imperialism. And their nationalism was always sectionalism. They wanted to dominate the government. This is why George Mason wanted to have an amendment against navigation laws. Wanted to have a two-thirds majority to pass navigation laws. What's a navigation law? A tariff. He was recognizing when the Constitution was being written and then ratified that the North was going to try to abuse power. And you can stop that from happening by making it very difficult to pass navigation laws. And if you look at the Hartford Convention... And you look at what they wanted to do. They wanted to minimize the power of the South because they thought the South had uh, unequal power. Too much power for their section. This is the same thing that's being said nowadays by those who were critical of the Senate, this national Senate vote. I mean, this stuff is just so stupid. National Congress vote. These people are delusional. But, hey, uh, this is where, we, again, where we are in 2018. So I hope you enjoyed these pieces uh, this week and and, uh, this discussion of Lee. Until next time, good day.